Hang on. Let me try that again. The year is 724 AD. I need to say that again for the recording. We're in Germany. It's not the Germany that we know today, the industrialized nation. No, this is a long time ago. What we've got is a forested land full of superstitious tribes. The Germanic peoples are enslaved to a pagan religion that included venerating certain groves and specific trees. One such tree was called Donner's Oak, or uh, we might, uh, Donner was uh, one of the names given to the god we more uh, uh, commonly know as Thor. So it was Thor's Oak, this tree that was dedicated to him in what is now modern-day Germany. And it was off-limits. And there's this fellow named Boniface, who was a missionary, who was trying to bring Christianity to the Germanic peoples. And he was working in that area, seeking to see conversions. And he had a great amount of success to free them from fear and from superstition and lead them to the light of Christ. One day, Boniface came to Thor's oak, that great big oak dedicated to Thor, and he chopped it down. Now, the the local people were probably horrified and probably expected that Thor would bring his vengeance on Boniface for doing such an offensive thing to them. But Boniface belonged to Yahweh, to the God of gods. Boniface was not struck down. And the story goes, I'd take it with a grain of salt, but the story goes that he only had to notch the tree And a great wind blew up and blew the whole thing over. And then it fell into four pieces. And the people who were watching on, many of them became Christians when they saw the power of the Lord. He took the timber of that great oak that was dedicated to Thor and he used it to build a church. That tree that was once dedicated to pagan worship was now dedicated to the worship of the God of gods, the truest God. Boniface was not afraid of Thor. He knew that their God was no God in the fullest sense of the word. He wasn't afraid of the people. He probably had a group of people with him, but not enough to withstand a mob if the people decided to to take on Boniface. But Boniface wasn't afeard. He knew that the true Christian faith was a faith that would triumph over all other false religions. Boniface wasn't afraid to go into a foreign country and proclaim the truth of the gospel, knowing that God could save people and God would protect him. And God would protect him for many, many more years to come. But eventually, later, when his time was up, he lost his life at the hands of those he was trying to reach with the gospel. He was martyred while they were looking for gold. And they opened up his chests. And you know what they found inside? They found scriptures. They found books. The story of Boniface reminds me of this much older story that we're looking at today, that it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ in the days of the judges, where there was a man named Gideon who was called by God to do something very similar, to work hard in spiritual warfare for the sake of God. Yet this man was afraid. He was afraid to do what he was called to do. 
He was afraid to stand up and be counted as one of God's people in a world that was opposed to God's people, where you could be oppressed and pushed back because of your allegiance to God. Yet despite this man's cowardice, despite his fear, God used him. And God used him to save a great number of people from the Midianites. Now we have too much text here between chapters uh, 6 and 7 to look at every nook and cranny of the text, but we're going to make our way over it and see lots uh, lots of stuff along the way. As I mentioned before, if there's something that you have a question about, you can send that in. But let's follow the story of this fearful man used by God to save God's people. As we open the, in the text in, in chapter 6, we come up against a familiar cycle, a familiar pattern. If you've been with us in Judges or if you've read Judges, you would remember this pattern, this cycle, that we expect what happens first thing, the people did what was evil in the sight of God. And even though God had given them prosperity, God had given them life, God had put them in this land and he said, I'll be your God, I will protect you, I'll bless you, I'll look after you, you just have to remain faithful to me. But despite everything that God had done for them, they decided they were going to rebel. They thought they knew better. In verse 1, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. And this is the way I've been saying it. It's not like God's being mean here. The people say, we don't want you as our God. And so God says, here, try life without me as your God. He basically gives them what they want. Now, eight years wasn't quite as long as last time, but the same pattern is going on here. In Judges, there is apostasy, that people turn away from God. Kids, apostasy means that, the, um, that somebody gives up the faith or turns their back on the faith. And that leads them into a servitude, an oppression to a foreign power. And then in the midst of their pain and their suffering, they realize what they've done. And so they turn around and they cry out to God. They supplicate God. They, they cry out to him. They call on him. And then God answers their call and he gives them salvation. But then before long, they're back to apostasy again. But what does their apostasy look like? It looked like turning their back on God and worshipping other gods, and in particular, the gods of the Canaanites, the Baals and the Asherah. And so the Baals were, um, Baal was a a word for Lord, so it was different kinds of lords or or different gods, but generally speaking, Baal was worshipped as a storm god, and so if you wanted rain, the idea was that you would go and placate the storm god to get rain. And the Asherah was a feminine god, uh, goddess, who was a worship with these poles, they called them Asherah poles, and the idea being that they were fertility goddess. So they would go and worship the Baals, the storm god, and Asherah, for the fertility goddess. On this occasion, the oppression that came because of their rebellion, it came from Midian. And that's a fair way away, but they're also joined by Amalekites and people from the east. We don't get any more description other than people from the east. And we'll we'll have a look at a map a little bit later. But if you're imagining a picture of the Middle East with Israel in the middle against the the Mediterranean Sea, Midian was kind of to the southeast of Israel. So what would happen? 
They would encamp against Israel and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey, for they would come up with their livestock in their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste to the land as they came in. So Midian had come up out of the southeast and they had laid waste to all of Israel that they could kind of get to. And they look like they're kind of a traveling uh, host, uh, a no, as in, traveling as a nomadic people, just making their way across the landscape and stealing anything they could get their hands on. Because there were so many of them and because they were strong, they basically just would, they would come through town and take whatever they could, take the grain, take the livestock, take everything. Imagine for a moment if it was like most most of us have jobs where we get salary kind of put into our bank account on a you know, fortnightly or weekly basis. Imagine that there was somebody who could hack into your bank account every other week and take your pay packet away. It was that kind of thing. They had needs to, to fulfill. They had to, they're trying to set up for winter, save for winter. They're trying to feed their families. They're trying to do all the things of life in an agrarian society, but somebody keeps coming in and taking everything away just as they are, you know, might be able to use it. It was a bit sad as well because Midian, as a nation, was descended from Abraham. So Israel was descended from Abraham as well. Like Ishmael, um, Midian was one of the other sons of Abraham who became a nation. And so Midian was their long-lost cousins. And here they are oppressing Israel. They weren't from the promised line chosen by God to, to develop the promises of Abraham more fully, but they were still blessed by him. Yet they turned to oppressing God's people. So Israel has a desperate situation and they turn to God. And God said, basically, he sent them a prophet to announce their judgment. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live you've not listened to me. So these people are crying out to God and God sends them a prophet to say, I saved you from Egypt and you haven't listened to me. Right. Where's the good news? Where's the, where's the hope? It, it, it almost seems like God's not going to give them a word of hope. For a moment, you might be tempted to think, maybe they've done it this time. Maybe this is it. Maybe they've reached the end of God's patience and he's not going to save them again. But the next verses do give us hope. There are no consoling words from that prophet, but God will save his people by calling on a fearful deliverer. I changed the name in this, but I forgot to update this slide. It's God calling a fearful deliverer. Because in the next lines of the story, we quickly find out that God is calling Gideon to deliver Israel from their plight. An angel of the Lord comes to meet Gideon and sat down under the oak in Orpah, Orphrah, that belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. So, with the Midianite horde on the prowl, Gideon is threshing his wheat in a wine press. 
you know, usually you thresh wheat on a threshing floor and you press white grapes in a wine press, but he's trying to hide his, his harvest from the Binyadites because if they find out that he's got food, they're going to come and take it. So this is a good strategy, you know, hide your food from the oppressors who are trying to take your food away. But this introductory picture puts us in the, you know, with the scene of a guy who is associated with fear. While this makes sense, what he's doing right now, there is an, a connection between Gideon and fear that is starting to be established even in this first opening scene. And it's almost funny, funny the way the angel of the Lord addresses him, this guy hiding in a, in a, in a wine press, and he says, greetings, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you. So Gideon starts to make some inquiries of the Lord. And it becomes apparent that Gideon is in some measure a worshipper of the Lord. He knows about the Lord. His follow-up questions make that clear. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers accounted, uh, recounted to us? Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So Gideon knows the history. He knows his family history. He knows that God is powerful. He knows that they have been given over by God to the Midianites. He is looking for the works of the Lord, the mighty works of the Lord. But notice what he's not doing. He's, he's not taking responsibility for the things that got them in the, the place where they are. He, he's, not, he's not saying, we've worshipped foreign gods you did the right thing, God. No, he's saying, God, why, aren't you, why, why haven't you saved us? Forgetting that they first forsook the Lord to go after the Baals and Asherah, he starts asking, Lord, why have you put us in this position? But God kind of brushes over that and basically says, do you want to see my wonderful deeds? I'm sending you. You want to see my wonderful deeds? I'm sending you. You see it play out in verses 14 to 16. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. So the angel of the Lord just gave Gideon a mission this is, this is God himself. Remember, the angel of the Lord in the Bible is the closest thing that we come to seeing God in, like, God himself. It's so much so that Gideon thinks he's going to die after he realizes that this is the angel of the Lord. And some people have thought that perhaps the angel of the Lord is like a pre-incarnate Jesus. Before he took on a body and was born in Bethlehem hundreds of years later, perhaps this was Jesus appearing in an angelic form because this angel is referred to as the Lord. It's such a close connection between the angel of the Lord and God himself that they, they say, the Lord said when the angel of the Lord speaks, or the Lord did this when the angel of the Lord does something. Anyway, so here is Gideon, who's just received a mission from God, from God's mouth. Go and do this. Many of us would love for God to reveal himself to us and so that we, we knew without doubt that he was real and we knew without a doubt what his calling was for our life. And here is Gideon getting that exactly right there in front of him. 
and he suggests, maybe you should find somebody else for the job. I might not be the best candidate. He sounds a little bit like Moses. Remember Moses with the burning bush? Oh, I can't speak good. Yet the Lord does not make mistakes. He chose Gideon because he wanted Gideon. Flaws and all. He calls Gideon to go and to use the strength that he has, a strength that God has given him, and use that strength to accomplish God's will. And this is the way that God's people always accomplish great things. Whether it be the defeat of Midian, the conversion of the Germanic peoples through Boniface, whether it be planting churches, whether it be the discipleship of our children, whether it be triumphing over sin in your own life, wherever you act in obedience, using the resources that you have, God goes out to accomplish his purposes. God can use the miraculous, but often he uses the regular people walking in obedience to achieve his goals. And just an aside, thinking about our kids and as our kids grow up, yes, we cannot save our kids' souls. That's something that's in God's hands. But one of the ways that God uses to save our children as they grow into faith, as they grow into adulthood and take on faith, what he uses is our obedience as parents from the earliest years. Just a little aside for you as parents. It's not just a luck of the draw thing. God uses our obedience. It doesn't guarantee that we get the goal, that, the result that we want, but God uses and blesses our obedience. I wonder, friends, how many of us look around at the world today and bemoan the awful state of affairs and we might ask the things that Gideon asks. Where is God? Are we forsaken? Where are God's mighty deeds? And so my follow-up question will be, where are his faithful people? Where is your obedience? Perhaps we are all hiding and wishing that somebody else will take up the task of standing against the opposing forces of the day. Brothers and sisters, we have everlasting life guaranteed to us. What do we have to lose? We can stand forth and be counted among the Lord's people to move forward under the Lord's guidance and be unashamed about who we are and what we stand for in Christ. What do we desire in the world? Do we desire healthy churches? Then let's put our hand to the plow and build healthy churches. Do we seek to save people's life from the fires of hell? Then go forth and pronounce the gospel that saves sinners from hell, like you and I. Do we desire joyful Christian homes? Then build joyful Christian homes. Do we desire a godly Christian spouse? Go out and find a godly Christian spouse. Do we desire godly politicians? Go into politics. Do we desire godly nurses and doctors and other professions? Then faithfully serve God and go out into these fields and fulfill the need. I fear too many of us as Christians think that Christian meekness means passivity, which it doesn't. Christ didn't save you so that you could hide away and try and skate through life, hiding from the worst of things, so that you can get home to Jesus. He saves you by grace, but he saves you for something in this world. We're not just in a holding pattern until we get to go home. 
We are representatives of Jesus in this world, heralding in the kingdom of God. We are representatives of Christ in this world and the ones through whom he will work and accomplish his mighty deeds. What did we get saved for? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We must walk in these good works and not hide away. Next, smashing altars and worshipping God. Smashing altars, worshipping God. God called Gideon and gave him the first task in his mission to save Israel. Your first, your first mission objective is get rid of the false worship in your hometown. That same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then... Build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of his height. Using the wood from the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So like Boniface would later do, and like we would do with things like celebrating Christmas and Easter, Gideon was called to take something that was dedicated to the worship of a false god and replace it with something that was true worship in worship of the true God. He wasn't merely to take down these things and repurpose them. He was called to tear them down and replace them. The spot wasn't forever tainted. It was a spot that was redeemed. That hill or wherever that spot was where the altar was, it was redeemed. Those materials weren't forever tainted. They were redeemed because they belonged to God and they were put to a proper use. As example, with the Asherah timber that was put to the proper use in a very symbolic way of, using, of being used in the worship of God with the, with the sacrifice as the timber for the fire. But there's an awful truth here, and that is that Gideon's own father is the one who set up this altar. And so there is, even in Gideon's own home, mixed worship. Gideon, he knew the Lord, he knew about the Lord, but his father, and presumably his, the household, had in some way been given over to the worship of the Baals and the Asherah. It was a problem that started at home. And so in order for God to save Israel, the big wide nation, where does God start? God starts in their own household. So Gideon sets to work on this task that God gave him. But that whiff of fear that we had noticed in the in the wine press, starts to become a bit of a stronger smell. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather in the daytime. He was afraid of his family. You know, tearing down the altar at night is a, is a good idea, you know, strategically speaking. There's less risk involved if there's not people around to, to take you on when you're tearing down their uh, place of worship. But the fact that Gideon is, like, presented as afraid, it's not just a strategic decision here. He is fearful. He'd been visited by the angel of the Lord and told to do this. 
God had spoken to him and specifically told him to do this. But he wouldn't, wouldn't stand up with confidence and bravery. He was acting out of fear, not out of trust. But nevertheless, although the, we might be um, upset about his motives, sad that he was afraid to do what God called him to do, he still did obey. And we want to praise him for that. That's good. It is good to obey God. And the people come across the destruction the next day. In the morning, the people of the town got up. There was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole cut uh, beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. And they asked each other, who did this? And they carefully investigated and they were told that Gideon, son of Joash, did it. So Gideon is found out. And he's given a new nickname by the people. Because he's pulled down Baal's altar, they say, let Baal contend against him. Or basically, like, let Baal get revenge on him if Baal wants revenge. And so Gideon is nicknamed Jerubal. Let Baal contend against him. But we see here that God has started his campaign to rid the Israelites of oppression by starting at home where the faithfulness was. And I would like to suggest that we too should start the same way. If we look out into the world and we see the faithlessness and the rebellion against God, perhaps we should firstly look inside our own um, area of influence and see if there is faithlessness in our own circumstances. We need to drive out any false worship in our starting with our own house. And you might be called names for it. You might be called a zealot. You might be called a fundamentalist or ultra-conservative. But it's far better for you to offend the sensibilities of others to be faithful to God than to pretend that it's okay to mix in ideologies and spiritualism that are opposed to God. And you'll notice that Gideon didn't go and get permission I'm not, I'm not trying to um, suggest that we should become vandals and go out as vigilantes and do crazy things. But I am suggesting that in terms of thinking about our spiritual place in Christ, we don't need to go and get permission from other people to stand up for Christ and to throw down arguments and to um, stand strong in our spiritual warfare in Christ. We don't take up literal swords, but we take up the sword of the Spirit. And it will be offensive to the world. But we need to start at home purging our house of idols, literal idols, though I don't expect that many of us have literal idols in our home, but if you do, get rid of them. Purge your house of metaphorical idols. We want to create homes and communities dedicated to the worship of the true God, Yahweh. And particularly in our day, we might remember that there is a conduit into our homes that we presumably all use the internet something that can be for great good but also might be a conduit of anti-god filth into our homes so not trying to say that you shouldn't use it but i'm saying is what are you doing with it has it become an altar where you sit down and sacrifice your time and devotion it, it is interesting to me how the way that when we set up our our hobbies, you know, maybe if we're film buffs and we set up a, a, a home cinema. We're not doing it deliberately, but it ends up looking like an altar, doesn't it? 
we have our table and we have the thing that is up in front of us and it is decorated just so. Again, I'm not trying to say there's anything wrong with a home cinema system, but what I'm saying is what things are altars in our homes where we are giving our devotion and our time and our attention to instead of serving the Lord God. Gideon is wavering in his faith. He's still afraid. He's wavering in his faith. He's, he's finished this first mission. It's accomplished, just like God said. He's driven out the false religion from their home. And now it's time to drive out the oppressor from their land. And God's spirit is on the move. He's filling and working in Gideon. The spirit of the Lord came on Gideon and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizarites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms and also to Asher, Zebulun and Naphtali. So they too went up to meet them. So this is the first stage. This throwing down the altar of Baal has started something. It is signaled to people that it's time. It's time to turn away from the Baals. And so they turn and he, he calls out the troops, so to speak. You can see here on this map, this over here is the Sea of um, Galilee. Many hundreds of years later, Jesus would come from this area up here. But what we're doing, what we're talking about is down here. And you can see these kind of purple lines, which indicate a guess at where the troops would have been coming from. As they're coming from Asher, Zebulun and Naphtali, they're coming from all over this region and they're assembling down here. Um, I can't, rem I can't read the, the actual label of the place um, where they gathered, but it's in the text. So the, the people of Israel are realizing now's the time. There is a call to war. They come out and they start to assemble to take on the Midianites. But Gideon's fear has not dissipated. The, the smell of fear is becoming a stench. God had promised already to deliver Israel through him. God has already asked him to do something and protected him through it. But Gideon's still wavering. And so we get this classic scene where he takes the, the, uh, the sheepskin. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground around is dry, then I'll know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose the next day, he squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. So the, the fleece was wet, the ground was dry. Gideon said, if, if you do this for me, I'll know. But what does Gideon do the next night? He goes, well, if you do it the other way around, if the, if the ground is wet and the fleece is dry, then I'll know. How many proofs does this man need? He tests God. The Deuteronomy law says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. But that's what Gideon did. And we might expect God to start getting angry, but he withholds punishment. He is kind and gracious and he gives what Gideon asks for. He's gentle with him in an unexpected way. So Gideon finds the confirmation that he needs. But the fear's not gone yet. In this last section, we see conquest through weakness, conquest through 
weakness. And this is probably the most well-known section of the story of Gideon, where he faces off against the army of the Midianites and the Amalekites with only 300 men. Uh, The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. So by this time, there's about 32,000 men assembled to take on Midian. And God says to him, you have too many. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me that my own strength has saved me. Now announce the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. So God's like, look, we could take on Midian with all these men, uh, these warriors who've come out to, to fight, but then you'll think that you did it by yourself. And so in order to show you that it definitely wasn't you, we're going to whittle down the numbers. How do they do it the first time? Basically, they said, look, anybody who's afraid to fight, go home. And so 22,000 of them left. You imagine that, two-thirds of your fighting force said, we don't really want to fight, we're out. 22,000 men left. But God says, look, it's still too many. This, this, um, this 10,000 that remained, too many. So there was this little test procedure where uh, God had them come down to a lake and then they, they had to go down to the water and get a drink. And there was two different ways that they would drink. Some of them uh, knelt down to the water and, um, and cupped the water up to, the, to their face and others lapped the water. And there's people who have kind of discussed what's the, reason, what's the reasoning going on here. The saying, what they reckon was that the guys who are lapping the water are cupping the water up to their face and they are, they are still looking around. So they're still aware of their surroundings while they're, they're lapping the water out of, um, out of their hands. That's what some people say. But the, it does seem rather arbitrary. But if anything, it does make sense to have the more aware warriors, the ones that you keep. And so there were 300 who came through that process, that filtering process. Out of 10,000, they came down to 300. The original 300 before the Spartans took all the fame and glory. So even though God had said, look, I'm going to deliver you, even though God had shown him these signs with the, the fleece on two different nights, even though God had visited him as an angel, he was still afraid. And you can empathize with him, right? You're facing... Thousands and thousands and thousands of an enemy that has been oppressing you for the last eight years. And you've got 300 blokes. I can appreciate why you would feel afraid. But that doesn't excuse Gideon. Because of all that has happened so far, because the God has spoken to him, his fear should be in the Lord, not in the enemy. He was not really trusting in God. And how do we know this? Well, God says to him, if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant, Pura, and listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and his Pura, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. You see, if you were afraid, go down. What did he do? He went down. He was afraid. And he went down there and they eavesdropped on a conversation between some people who were camped there. One bloke says to another, I had a dream and about something, uh, what was it, a, a wheel of something that came in and crashed into the camp. And 
uh, it says, um, a round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck down the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. So this is the dream that the Midianite guy had. And the guy who's listening hears the dream and he gives an interpretation and he says, that's Gideon. Gideon is going to destroy our army. And now Gideon feels like he's ready to attack. Not after God told him you're going to have victory, but after the enemy told him that he was going to have victory. So, the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, and this, that is, as is the sand is on the seashore in abundance. There's this vast horde. And so God uses these 300 men. Gideon divided his 300 men into three uh, uh, companies, and he got them to put torches in a clay pot and to carry a trumpet, and they took the torches and the clay pots and the trumpets down, and they assembled around, um, and they, when they reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard, they blew their trumpets, and they broke the jars that were in their hands, so you imagine, it's the middle of the night, and all of a sudden you hear 300 trumpets, and you hear um, the, these, all this breaking pottery, and then all of a sudden a bunch of torches, a bunch of lights appear around your camp. You are going to be absolutely terrified, thinking the enemy army is here to dis- destroy us. And in the scheme of things, ordinarily, you wouldn't have every man with a trumpet. So if you had an ordinary comp- company of soldiers... If you're hearing um, 300 trumpets, that would imply to the enemy that there's 300 companies, but there's actually only 300 men. So God uses this kind of deception to trick them into thinking that there is much more, a much greater force coming in on them from all sides than there really is. And they see all these torches and they hear this great noise. They think they're being attacked, which they basically are, but then they basically go into fight or flight mode. So they're trying to run away and some of them are trying to fight, and they start fighting each other. And they start killing each other, their own friends. When the trumpet sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittah, towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel Meholah, near Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. So the Lord used the natural response, fight or flight response, to drive them to start taking each other out and basically destroying the army. God uses 300 men to destroy thousands and thousands and thousands. God brings victory through a small force. But strangely, Gideon gets them to to shout something. He says, when you break your pots, you shout, for the Lord. And then he adds on a bit. He says, for the Lord and for Gideon. Leaves us with a little bit of a bad taste in the mouth. Why are they shouting for Gideon? Is it just to strike fear into the hearts of the army who must have heard his name? Perhaps. Maybe the victory was starting to go to his head. And we'll talk more about that stuff going to his head next week. But here we see in this passage that God uses a weak force. an an amazingly weak force in comparison to bring victory. God would triumph through the fear that they had, an unlikely candidate. 
to win. And it reminds us of a man who would come along later, a deliverer who would come along later, who was seemingly weak. God would save his people through a carpenter from Nazareth. This carpenter from Nazareth is Jesus Christ, a mere man, although he was God, but he appeared in human flesh. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered the devil through the apparent weakness of the cross. He was captured by enemy forces and he submitted to their process of executing him. And it looked like they had won. It looked like Jesus was weak, but it was all part of the plan. And in fact, through the weakness of Jesus submitting and being killed, crucified on that cross, he brought about the victory that we have been celebrating here today with our singing and with our, and with our coming together with joy to remember the forgiveness that we have through Christ, the freedom that we have from the dead. Even now, though, we celebrate a weak faith in the eyes of the world. People call it a crutch. They say it's for the weak-minded, an opiate for the masses. And even some people who call themselves Christian will balk at the weakness of, of the faith and they'll feel like they need to make up for it somehow with some extra, with, with strength. Or they will need to kind of make up for it with, with um, trying to cover it up with other things. Some Christians will balk at the freeness of grace that God gives to his people. They'll try and cover it up with, uh, with, with good works in a way that dismisses the free gift that God has given, the free, unmerited, merciful grace that he gives to all who call on him. It's a gift given for no pay, and it's a gift that changes lives. We, we have to sit back and ask ourselves, how can freedom, sorry, how can forgiveness create freedom? How can forgiveness create obedience to God? You'd think you, if somebody's being disobedient, you come down harder and harder on them and eventually they'll get the point. But the Old Testament demonstrates that that doesn't work in the long run. There needs to be forgiveness. Forgiveness creates righteousness. It seems so weak and yet it builds societies. The forgiveness of Christ has built the blessings of Western civilization that we enjoy here now in safety. What seems like weakness, God uses. God uses to redeem his people. Let's just, um, let's just bring it all together. God uses flawed deliverers like Gideon, but he uses a perfect deliverer like Jesus Christ to save his people for all time. God uses apparent weakness to overcome the strong like he did with Jesus. And I, in many ways, we should say, yes, Gideon was a good example of obeying God, but we also need to remember that he was a flawed example who was a fearful man, and we should not follow his example of being fearful, but instead stand strong and fear God alone, not man. And here's an encouragement to cast down altars and raise up true worship. Drive off the enemies of God in our homes. 
and to walk in the strength of God with the Spirit at work in our lives. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story about Gideon, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to, uh, to fear you and not man. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to rest in the delivery of our great deliverer, Jesus, the, the apparently weak deliverer, who yet brought about a great victory. We thank you, Lord, that you rescue your people and that you have rescued us from Satan's sin and death. And we thank you, Lord, that it is a free gift of grace given to us even now. But I pray, Lord, that you would help us not to take that gift for granted, but instead to work heartily for you, to go out in the strength that you supply with the spirit that you give so that we might obey you with everything that we have for your glory. Amen.